welcome to You Are Good, everybody. We're doing we're doing the thing. We're talking about the feelings in movies. Yeah, we're using the movies as a recipe for feelings. We're like it calls for this much grief and this much exuberance and this many dad jokes. Just sprinkle it on freely. Yes, and we're doing we're doing our summer stretch, which brings us to what movie right now, Sarah? Oh, we're talking about The Mummy, which is one of the summeriest movies ever to some summery summeru <laughs> down at the drive-thru. And <laughs> down at the drive-thru. And who who were we joined by and how did this how did this all happen? Like what are the what are people getting in, involved in right now? We are joined by my friend Niraja, who's one of my dearest friends and one of the people I know who most deeply loves cinema. And we talked about The Mummy, which is a frequently requested movie because people really love it. And we talked about the fact that it is a movie that it is very easy to love and that we all individually love and that is like very racist. <laughs> and like, yeah. why is it possible <laughs> to enjoy it so much? Yeah. Yeah. We did talk about that. What stood out to you in this chat about The Mummy? Well, first of all, that like Niraja clearly needs to have just a show about cinema in some capacity or like a chance to talk about films more often. You just put a quarter in her and she's just too blessed to be stressed. She just goes straight <laughs> for it. She is like ready to be asked about the mummy and about the literature of colonialism and about Agatha Christie and kind of tropes of 1930s movies. I mean, this felt in like the best way possible. I say this as someone who like stayed in school until I was 28. This feels like a, a wonderful like summer film class. So I hope that you people enjoy it in that vein. And also in other ways, because we also talk about how horny we are for all the characters. One of the things that like I think, especially for first time or like newer listeners who don't quite know what the show is like I think it can get frustrating when they're like I came to talk about movies and these people are talking about all these other things this is a movie chat we guarantee movie chat there will be movie chat and there will be horny chat too so there will be a nice <laughs> intersplicing why didn't we change the name to horny chat Alex that, <laughs> that really seems like it was obvious in retrospect just a couple more quick notes before we begin the episode. You Are Good is made possible with support by Knack Factory, which is a commercial and creative content production company based in Portland, Maine, that does work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, you want to get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. We're also made possible with your support, with the support of folks who uh, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We have uh, relatively regular bonus episodes that happen there about twice a month. You'll have one coming up in sometime in the next handful of days. Um, and who knows what it'll be about. It's always a surprise. It's always a big time surprise. Maybe it'll be a movie this time. Usually it's just life odds and ends. I think, I think maybe it'll be a movie. But yeah, support us there. That's a thing that you're able to do. And finally, we have Spotify playlists that accompany each of these episodes, just music that's inspired by the conversation that we had in the chat. So look for that in the show notes. You can look for our Spotify playlist. All right. I think that's it. How are you doing? How's it going? Let us know. We're on social media. We're on Instagram and on Twitter, and you can find us there. I'm on TikTok. Sarah's not on TikTok yet. I'd be curious to know what that would be all about. <laughs> 
but uh find us there let us know how you're doing love we love 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 hearing from you all right let's go talk about the mummy death is only the beginning the man no mortal weapons can kill this guy oh well then we are just going to have to find some immortal one that's called stealing you know according to you and my brother it's called borrowing oh evelyn oh so you're still here <laughs> we've got problems prince Imhotep thanks you for your hospitality Ugh. and for your eyes and for your tongue oh. I am proud of what I am. I am a librarian. Well, I guess we go home empty-handed again. I wouldn't say that. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Do you want to tell us what we're watching today and what the significance of uh, or, or who the guest is in your life, Sarah? So today we are blessed with the guestship of my friend Niraja, who is historically one of my most wonderful ports of call when I was traveling and who hmm. and who I think of as like a cinematic caretaker in my life because I remember washing up in her apartment when I was like very tired and kind of like road beaten and she like set me up on her couch and then I was like as soon as I can I want to have exactly this and I did obtain it which is to have TCM on all through the night on mute and every time you wake up or have like a little like startle or are like stressed about something you look over and it's Judy Garland or somebody it's the rule in my house, you know, I, I want to look up and see something beautiful. So I'm a huge classic movie buff, can't get enough of it. So what is your background with The Mummy? I love action movies and um, I'm Indian, which is a qualifier for the fact that I love everything about the sort of colonial aspect of the British and foreign lands. Uh, and there's nothing very mm. good about it, but it's always been intriguing to me because it's a very small period of time that isn't really present anymore. Hmm. And I like to watch the interactions between the West and the East. And I think that's exactly what The Mummy is about. Hmm. It was uh, in the 1920s, especially, was an era of Egyptology, while people had been going to what they called the Far East and the Orient for centuries. It really began the period of excavating the old pyramids and everything and that sort of thing. And, you know, I love The Mummy. I think it's glorious. I think it's beautiful. It's definitely one of the happiest movies I can think of. But it is without any qualification. It's it's a story about colonialism. It's a story about a bunch of Mm. white people going into the Far East and exploring. And in fact, that is what the mummy stories are. It, all, all, hmm. Any any story about the mummy is the same thing. It's about you know it's it's like Indiana Jones, but it's going to the Far East. It's about finding magic and having that magic turn on you. Hmm. So 
the things I like about the mummy are pretty simple. Uh, it's got really good characters. It's beautiful to look at. The writing is really tight. And it has one of my favorite heroines of all time, the librarian, mm. <laughs> uh, which they ruined in the second one. Oh, which I've never seen because I fear sequels, reasonably so, as someone who grew up in the 90s. <laughs> the actors are great. You like Brendan Fraser. He's such a likable actor. And it kind of highlights the colonial aspect without it never loses sight of it. You know, it's always there. It's always like in the, yeah. the old pilot who comes in and ends up submerged in the, in the desert. In quicksand, right? In quicksand, exactly. Yeah. But it has a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in it as well. And, right. it's, you know, it has a lot of humor. It has a lot of funny characters. And it sort of makes that come alive. You know, it's, 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 it's really a fantasy in a lot of ways. Yeah. This was made in, I think, 1999. And it predates a lot of superhero movies. So in a lot of ways, you know, mm. it was the last of the action movies, the last of the Indiana Jones movies. Huh. I have to imagine that when this was being pitched or like when this was being made to order, like however this happened, that the elevator pitch for it was like, it's Titanic meets Indiana Jones. <laughs> and they did it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's part of it. You know, it's very character driven. You don't, a lot of them are, are sort of stereotypes, but that doesn't necessarily make them any less lovable, I think. And, you know, Brandon Fraser is this sort of rugged adventurer, but he's also a nice guy who cleans up well and, and gives her some museum, to, you know, some archaeological tools. Mm -hmm. And um, it got a lot of heat when it came out because all the ethnic characters were dead. Mm. And they redeemed themselves by making sure that Oded Fair was, uh, I think his name is Ardeth Bay, was kept alive. Which is interesting because this is the only time that I was watching it. And I was like, oh, like this guy, he, he got left in a tomb with the Pharaoh's guards or whatever. Yeah. Like he's so screwed. And then they just have him magically return. And I all, like this feels to me like and weirdly similarly to how Ocean's Eleven feels like such a pre 9-11 movie to me. Yeah, this feels like like all the history that that explains or leads up to 9-11 in a way and the ensuing quote war on terror, but also the kind of crushingly stupid optimism of like rewriting this character to be alive. The guy who's from the sacred order of mummy protectors <laughs> and have him be like <laughs> May Allah always smile on your people. It's like, really? Like, these are the people who, like, they read the sacred incantation. They dug up the city of the dead. Mm -hmm. They brought back the mummy. They started the curse. Like, you've just been through this whole ridiculous loss of life, all because they did something stupid. And then the moral at the end is like, good job. <laughs> I, I think that was a production choice. Good job solving the very problem you caused. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'd spoken to the self-awareness of the movie, but I do love the points of self-awareness. Like there are several digs at Americans being ridiculous, uh, several yeah. digs at Americans being haphazard. Well, no one in this movie is American. Isn't that interesting? The Americans in this movie are like uh, in Dracula. Well, the Americans in this movie are the uh, other sort of hunters. And if you look at them closely, yeah. they really peg on every stereotype you can get for an adventurer. You have a, a cowboy, 
you have sort of an Eastern scholar with the glasses. You have sort right. of a, a <laughs> yeah. I guess he's sort of a gangster type. You know, he looks like a no nonsense gangster type. So there's a real innocence to this movie, and I agree. And there's a, there's no cynicism in it. There's a lot of things that you can point to that are culturally wrong. Sure, sure. You know, the, just the fact that the the scary order and all the killing and all that stuff. Um, a lot of it's redeemed by the pacing and the humor. Hmm. What happened? You just kind of get swept away in it. And even if you know better, even if you don't like the fact that the warden is a smelly, you know, ugly Arab guy and then the white people are the ones who basically escape. And what you said, Sarah, is basically a production choice. Hmm. I think they wrapped the movie and then they got some feedback and everybody was pissed that he died. And people said that, you know, not one brown character survives this. And not even the hot one. Save the hot one. <laughs> I, especially the save the hot ones. I mean, that was a no brainer. Um <laughs> It, it is absolutely, and I could say this being a classic movie buff, it is absolutely a throwback to old mummy movies. And mm. I did a little research on mummy movies. And with almost very few exceptions, I mean, you, your mummy can be a woman or a guy. Mm-hmm. It varies depending on your movie. And you might be surprised to learn that the Tom Cruise movie followed a pretty set pattern that other movies did too. Namely, that there was this princess, she wanted power, and she needs a consort, so she situates on a human and you know by killing him she gets a consort the male mummy movies are all the same thing he's a priest he has an illicit love for usually the pharaoh's daughter in case in this case the pharaoh's mistress she dies he wants to bring her back to life he needs a human female so i mean a lot of movies are like this but it's about finding your mate Hmm. the fact is that very few mummy movies deviate from what we're seeing you know we're seeing kind of the essence of mummy movies which they were trying to do the boris karloff version and what happens is you open an illicit tomb you're not supposed to you do it in a spirit of adventure or you do it which is fine or knowledge that's okay but you can't do it in a, in a spirit of greed. And every character that has greed in them usually ends up dead. Mm. And there's almost there's almost no variation. The mummy comes to life. He haunts everybody who woke him up. And I'm going to throw this out there, but I think the mummy is the daddy. Okay? Mm. I think that he's minding his own business. <laughs> Let's just get right to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to say this right now. He's, he's the daddy. He's in the den. He's doing his business. The kids come in, make a big mess, and he chases them all away. That's that's my two cents on that uh, on the daddy, but like that, it, they don't vary. And he's like, and now the ten chores, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up loving Indiana Jones as well, mm-hmm. and there is something similar in the Indiana Jones movies and in this. I think where it's like they're both very explicitly, I think, love letters to like 1930s serials mm-hmm. for children or you know or adults at the time. It's a love letter to a time in media where, like, you could be really overtly racist. Like, I was reading old Wonder Woman comics, Mm -hmm. and the collection has a disclaimer that's like, by the way, these are from a time when you would just be really racist in comics for no apparent reason. But things have changed. Okay, goodbye. Agatha Christie, too, I feel like is relevant to this because, like, she's the greatest selling author of all time, I think. And she also just many times in her writing is like, by the way, I'm really, really racist. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just so baked into it. And I feel like that's like the aesthetic of Downton Abbey and of sort of British colonialist power and culture. Like, like you can't get the aesthetic without getting the racism, I guess. Does that seem true to you? I think the racism is bred into it. 
Yeah. I think that what you're seeing in the mummy is literally no different than you're going to find in any mummy movie simply because the idea is to go to a foreign place. Yeah. And bring back something that is is foreign and alien and uh magical. Uh, something you couldn't find in Victorian England or 1920s England. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dracula starts off a lot the same way, mm-hmm. but hmm. the issue is it's more like Dracula is on his way to you anyway. He lures people in and he's uses their power to get into the West. But here it's a very much of an exploration of the Far East. And, and if you think about it, you know, you could make a mummy movie in space. You know, it's just going somewhere and digging up something you're not supposed to be mm. dealing with. Let's make that movie. <laughs> Alien is that movie. Alien is exactly that movie. Technically, yes. Yeah. Alien is that. Right. That is the mummy in space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we're never concerned about alien culture. We're never concerned about, right. you know, uh, the the world of the alien. The alien comes to us. And also, like, now that you say that, it's very, because I, I guess listen to the Tommyknockers which seems inspired by the thing to an extent because mm-hmm. it's about digging up a spaceship that crashed into Maine long, long ago, millions of years ago. And then the thing is about, like, you get to Antarctica and you dig up a spaceship that you shouldn't have dug up. Mm-hmm. Like, why are these aliens always crashing? <laughs> like, why do these aliens crash so much if they're so smart? I know, I know. But and also an alien. There's like a crashed alien ship, I think. But right. it's like they had to crash their ships so that they could become tombs so that we could find them and have something to dig up that we shouldn't have dug up. See, I think part of the idea is that the native people of this land and the Egyptians are mm-hmm. too smart for this. Mm. They're not going to go around digging up their mm. own tombs and digging up their own magic. It takes an outsider. It takes an arrogant Western outsider to come in and say, yeah. you know, we we want to dig this up, which is exactly what the 1920s were about. And there were I mean, that's when the mythology of the mummy really got going was that, you know, I think with King Tut's tomb, there was a curse on it. People who were involved in the expedition got sick or got hurt or got died. Even as a kid, I remember being like, this seems pretty circumstantial, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Right. It is circumstantial. But what made it work was the fear of the Far East, the fear of Egypt. You know, it's the idea that these people are so foreign, they have magic. Mm -hmm. And that if somebody dies of typhoid or a rock falls on them or normal construction accidents happen, it got built up into this whole you know, idea that you can't mess with ancient magic. You can't, and to a certain extent, you can't mess with Egyptian magic. Mm -hmm. And even Indiana Jones, for example, he isn't really suffering from the curse of looking for the stuff and he wants to put everything in a museum just right. like these people do right that's why they're pure yeah somebody else wakes up the evil well and specifically it's like there's nazis who are trying to collect sacred artifacts and use them to like make nazism stronger which like I gotta say, like, even when I was a kid, I appreciated that Indiana Jones is one of his main jobs is to punch Nazis. But like that choice has aged very well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there's less of a sense of colonialism with Indiana Jones, even though, you know, he's set in a time period because while he's an explorer, I don't know if he actually awakens the evil. You know, I think it's somebody else who awakens the evil. Right. Right. Well, he's the one who gets to be like, look away, Marion. 
don't open your eyes. Exactly, exactly. Which makes you wonder what he's doing there anyway. I mean, he's essentially doing the same thing as these people in The Mummy. He's gathering artifacts and taking them away from their native lands and putting them in museums. Yeah. I do like that. Even though Evelyn is so, so enthusiastic about the search, Evelyn's the only one who points out to Brendan Fraser's character that what he's doing is effectively stealing. Mm-hmm. There's... A modicum of self-awareness. That's nice. That didn't exist in Indiana oh, Jones movies. Trust me. You know? <laughs> they trash it in the next one. I mean, the first thing you see is her taking a sledgehammer to an ancient wall. I mean, it, you know, they abandon, oh, man. abandon the Egyptology, abandon the, the quest for knowledge. They abandon all of it. it. I think that her character is really central to this. She's on a quest for knowledge. And, you know, she's the one who drives everybody to Hamanoptera. She's a scholar. You know, there's a foil to her, which is that the Americans have their own scholar, an Egyptian scholar, mm. who's quite arrogant and uses diggers to open the tombs. And the reason I like her is because I think that in this movie, they're quite faithful to her character. You know, she doesn't have a lot of fight scenes. She reacts like somebody who isn't used to violence. And it's her knowledge that allows her to mm. subdue the mummy. And whatever everybody else is doing, all the mm-hmm. men are running around fighting and chasing stuff. It's it's really what she does. She awakens the mummy and she puts him back in. I mean, she's the only woman. It's a patriarchal movie. It's- right. There's that scene where the other crew says they have a woman in charge. What do you think that she knows? And then we see the scene in which she's explaining exactly what she knows, which I like. <laughs> You know, to dig up this tomb, they're all going to get chased around and punished. But it's the people who have the sacred canisters with his organs. They're the ones who get killed. And anybody who wants treasure gets killed. By the way, any child with glasses who saw this, <laughs> like I switched to contact lenses a few months after I saw the mummy, I think. And I've never gone back because if you're being chased by a mummy, to me, there is nothing more terrifying than any scene in any movie where a character says, my glasses. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see a thing without my glasses. Because you're like, oh my God. And then you're like, was the mummy super nearsighted the whole rest of the movie? Or is it just a symbolic assimilation? Like He can assimilate the eyeballs and then he grows them out as new eyeballs that don't have astigmatism or whatever. I mean, it's it's a little ridiculous, you know, and I think that you know, the one thing I wish the mummy had done was incorporate the Egyptians a little bit better. I saw an interview with the guy who played Warden who said that he had to fight very hard to have like a one and a half dimensional character. Like I had to fight for one and a half so that I could like go home and see people. And you're like, what did they start with? Yeah. yeah. And, and like the overtness of it is really intense because like this is a character who's like he's a pre- he's an Egyptian prison warden, I guess. And they spend a lot of the movie, not a lot of the movie, but a lot of the part that he's in talking about how he's stinky. He's obviously gropes women every chance he gets. He's like framed as like being very physically gross. And then he dies and no one cares and no one is sad. It really speaks to like the amount of like overt racism that can be present in a really well done crowd pleaser family movie that I grew up Mm -hmm. loving and like I cannot help but loving despite knowing how awful that depiction is and again like how did they start Mm -hmm. so I have always loved the character Benny I think he's wonderfully depicted I think Kevin J. O'Connor is amazing in the role I cherish depictions of cowards in media (laughs) because I am a coward but I was just thinking this watch I was like okay 
We don't know if Benny is Jewish or not Jewish. He doesn't seem to be anything, but we know that during the scene, which I think is a wonderful and very funny scene, and I loved it when I first saw this in the theater. I was like, yes, that would be me, where the mummy is advancing towards him. At first, <laughs> he brings out a crucifix that's around his neck, and he starts saying the Lord's Prayer or whatever. And then he's like, no. And then he like takes <laughs> he just takes out religious medallion after religious medallion and starts trying to like pray to whatever god you know he's just he's just got a bunch of choices and then he pulls out a star of david and he starts speaking and i guess hebrew and the mummy is like the language of the slaves (laughs) and that's how benny starts working for him and then at the end like he gets you know spoiler Benny gets his comeuppance because he does the classic thing you should never do in a mummy movie, and he tries to um, drag out a bunch of treasure. So he's like dragging big bags of gold out of this tomb. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I know this character isn't actually supposed to be Jewish, but do other people know that? I watch a lot of things with closed captions, and Benny is Hungarian. Mm -hmm. Because when he talks to himself... Or when he mutters something, the closed captions say it is Hungarian. If he's Hungarian in the 1920s, there's a strong chance he is Jewish. Right. It's not like you have a character who's like, obviously Susie's not Jewish, but like, she, you know, it's just, <laughs> to me, it's like, it's there if you want to see it. And I think yeah. a lot of people are just like, ah, look at that Jewish stereotype over there. Isn't that great? Like, yeah, I don't know. Again, it's like the kind of thing where like when I when I was 11 and also when it was possible to be a lot more innocent about America because a lot of things hadn't happened yet. And also because I was 11, I was like, oh, that's funny. What a smart thing to do to like learn a little Hebrew so that you can have this moment pan out and then live a little bit longer, which is certainly my goal. And now I'm like, I don't know, you guys. This seems irresponsible. It is. It is irresponsible. Niraja, can I ask you a question about your love for, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but your your appreciation for movies that depict the colonial era? Yeah. Like, you can't really make, like, a woke colonial movie, right, in order to portray what was going on. So, like, it's, I have a feeling, like, that relationship with loving that is complicated. Could you... Tell me about that. Yes, it is extremely complicated. I mean, the easiest way I can say it will not make sense, but I I love the whole British Empire except for the rampant racism, which was central to the British Empire. (laughs) Sure. My grandfather worked for the railroad, so he was very heavily involved in sort of the British infrastructure. Mm. And both my parents had sort of a classical education. So I grew up reading P.G. Woodhouse and Agatha Christie. And when you're young, you know, you don't pick up a lot on the rate and even just like Enid Blythe and children's stories. So I grew up on a lot of British literature. And um, part of it is that, you know, you kind of grow up loving the aesthetic. And what I realized really early onwards is that it was strange for me to be identifying with these white characters, because if I were living during that time, I'd be serving their drinks, you know, or I'd be I'd be like one of the diggers. And it's been difficult to sort of make peace with that. I can only say that it really does fascinate me. Victorian England to about the 1920s and 30s has always fascinated me. It's also the same era where I also love classic movies, and that's the same same sort of issue. Mm. I am really interested in how the West and the East interact with each other, how the East influenced England very much. And it's it's very subtle, but, you know, the Indian culture mm. in England is, is much stronger, uh, much more uh, has been around a lot longer than it has in America. 
it's it's kind of part enjoyment. Um, I try to keep a very questioning mind. It's something that I had to learn because, like I said, when you when you exposed to a lot of British things as a kid, you accept it unquestioningly until you really start thinking about what you're looking at. Being Indian American, I haven't always seen myself as a foreign person, but I'm re- I had to slowly realize that that is how the colonial world would see me. Mm. I would like to see a mummy movie from an Egyptian standpoint. Yeah. From Ardeth Bay standpoint, he's minding his own business. A bunch of white people show up. They dig up this mummy, you know. But the problem is that, you know, it would have to be the West bringing in the magic to the East. Mm-hmm. And the only way that's ever happened is, is sort of technology and science. Um, mm-hmm. We don't really have that. And if you take something like the Tom Cruise mummy movie, he doesn't address anything about the colonial aspect. It's a pure adventure movie. It's a pure action movie. There are no Egyptians there. You know, I think that for all its flaws and, and its racism, at least there were there was some acknowledgement of, of Egypt, of being in Egypt, mm-hmm. of having Egyptian culture, whereas the Tom Cruise movie was white. It was completely white. It had no cultural basis whatsoever, even a flawed cultural basis, I think. I mean, I feel like the thing that the thing that makes this work, the 99 version work I feel like if you're going to revive what was a, essentially like a universal monster movie uh, in some way, and there was that huge universal revival in the in the 90s, like you need some level of like postmodern self-awareness. And this movie mm-hmm. has this movie is beautifully campy. Like I think it's, it's, yeah. it's self-reference and camp is great without being insufferable. And I have not seen the Tom Cruise mummy movie, but like I looked at it being advertised and I was like this movie doesn't seem very aware of itself like this Mm-mm. movie seems like it doesn't seem like it's going to be a fun mummy yeah I don't, I don't want a mean mummy I want a fun mummy Alex you were texting me you were saying like a fun fact about this movie is that the actors when they were making it they didn't know what genre it was going to be marketed as and it shows and I was like I don't know what genre it was marketed as please tell me <laughs> I feel like they benefited by their not knowing in some way because I know I know they hired Sarah. Who's the character who the the actor who you said that you like? He's the Scottish guy. Oh, John Hanna. <laughs> who I guess they they hired like like some one of the filmmakers hired because they saw him in Four Weddings and a Funeral and thought he was a comic actor, but he's not. And hmm. Brendan Fraser had a different idea, and it seems like Rachel Weisz had a different idea. And it I think it plays well in the final movie. Like it feels like. It's really hard to pin down what this movie is genre wise, but it's good Mm -hmm. to know that no one knew while they were making it as well. (laughs) I mean, it does feel like Raiders of the Lost Ark to me and that it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, to me what's happening here and why I also loved Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was at this age, what works for that and what works in The Mummy as, as far as my 11 year old self could tell was that like. The action sequences are like this very silly, if you think about it, beautifully done ballet where like everyone is taking it totally seriously, making it look gorgeous. And then when we back off of the action and stop doing that with like total commitment, we can kind of laugh about the situation that we're in. And there's a lot of humor and characters are able to be off the cuff, funny and behave like real people and then go ahead and do amazing things and also live in this kind of arch world that as maybe a tween makes you feel very safe because you know that the people who aren't supposed to die aren't going to. Those movies aren't really as popular anymore. I think what happens Mm. is that 
when you try to do something like this now, you're going to get something like the Tom Cruise movie, which is, you know, can get very dark. Mm. And well, Tom Cruise movie, the only thing that you're aware of in a Tom Cruise movie is that it's Tom Cruise. Yeah. And you're like, there goes Tom Cruise. He's like 60. Maybe he should be slowing down <laughs> about now. Yeah. <laughs> The mummy, as you're describing, like what the mummy is, is like about blowback, right? Like, but like it's never it's never acknowledged as such. You go meddling where you should not be meddling, and then bad stuff happens. But it's it's largely externalized. It's like, well, it's because of their curse. It's like, well, maybe mm-hmm. you shouldn't have been doing that. Like that's never the takeaway. Somehow, you're also like, well, maybe they shouldn't have done the Hamdai to anyone if like doing so meant that you had to have a legion of mummy protectors for <laughs> 3,000 years. Yeah, shouldn't they just have killed him? Yeah, you could just kill him. Like most people just kill someone, you know, it does. Yeah. You're like, okay, these Egyptians are making some choices here. But like something that I, I like that we try and do on this show is to not just answer the question like, is this racist? Because I like to try and say like, yes, this is racist or like it probably is. And then like, okay, but like, if it is, then why does it go down so smooth for so many people, including me? I mean, really, like I've been thinking lately about what is the essential template of the slasher. And I feel like this is making me realize that it goes back a lot farther and is a lot bigger. My, and I think we talked about this recently. My idea was that, oh, like, and then there were none. The movie of And Then There Were None is the first slasher, mm-hmm. um, which Agatha Christie and in her infinite charm originally titled 10 Little N-Words because I, I oh, guess yeah. people just did that in the 40s. They did. They did. Oh, oh, okay. It was not 10 Little n I get you. Sorry. Jeez. It wasn't when Indians. You... It was 10 Little N-Words. And wow. yeah. if you find an old copy of the book, I'd advise you to be careful because it will shock you. Wow. By its very definition, colonialism in the British Empire was racist. It was about going into countries that didn't have the same technology or the infrastructure, giving them the technology and infrastructure and also keeping them from it, you know, keeping them into a third class compartment. Right. And the problem is, is that if you go into a movie set in a colonialist era without expecting the racism, then you're not really getting the you're not really understanding the colonialist experience. Yeah. I do love the idea of like having of of someone making a mummy movie from the Egyptian perspective. I mean, I feel like, you know, I hope one of yeah. our listeners has a two hundred million dollar budget that they're able to make <laughs> make this movie yeah. with because that's a great perspective. I'd love to see that. Also think about Anaxin Moon's perspective. She dies. And before she dies, you know, her she knows her boyfriend is going to resurrect her. So cool. And then like thousands of years pass and then she wakes up screaming in this tomb where she gets to live for like five minutes and then she just gets killed again. Like that sucks. And all she did was just like not understand how smudgeable her body paint was. <laughs> no, and I got to tell you, I got bad news for you, but she comes back in the second one, too. Oh, okay, of course. Oh, well, at least she gets to have more time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, everybody, and that's the problem. Everybody, include Dwayne, including Dwayne The Rock Johnson, shows up for the second one. <laughs> it is a classic mummy movie, and what they did with the second one is what they always do, which is sort of try to up the ante. More mummies, more more magic, more archaeology. More mummies, more problems. Slime mummies mummies with lasers <laughs> yeah mummies with lasers mummies in space the one thing they didn't do is bring benny uh, bring uh, benny back as a as a mummy which they should have done oh that- 
have been great. A mummy with a, a little hat. Yeah, exactly. And then and getting back to the slasher thing, like to me, the basic slasher premise is like something bad happened before. And then the person the bad thing happened to comes back to where the bad thing happened and they take revenge either on the people who are actually responsible or probably just on their proxies who are like, you know, Kevin Bacon smoking a joint. Yeah. And then it's like you have to battle off this monster and then by saving your own life, you basically get to be like, who can even remember how this got started? So what's interesting to me is that like the slasher is a form or it's like one iteration in a very old form that helps people who have conquered somebody or who are worried about, you know, like, oh, like because the whole premise with Friday the 13th is that Jason is mentally disabled and drowns and he's like not like the other campers. He's like the towny kid of the woman who works as a cook mm-hmm. and he's not like this happy middle-class kid who gets to play in the sun. Like he's the kid Mm -hmm. of the worker and he drowns because no one cares about him. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that story is like the working class got left behind. Who cares? They're going to kill (laughs) you. Are you bringing this up because we talked about mummies in space, Sarah, because of Jason X? I mean, Jason (laughs) is in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like Jason got to go to space. So the mummy (laughs) should go to space. And the leprechaun went to space. Everyone should go to space. Leatherface in space. Leather space. There's your movie. Oh, man. I'm realizing, though, that like the because originally I was like, oh, the mummy follows a slasher template. Mm. And now I'm like that meme, the galaxy brain meme where I'm like, no, (laughs) the slasher movie is a mummy movie. If you're doing this template over and over as kind of a colonialist story, it's like. White people go to scary foreign place, dig up thing they weren't supposed to dig up, get in trouble, fix trouble, end with treasure and having a nice kiss on a camel. They all have elements in in either of those universal movies, right? Or the the mm-hmm. base texts. Like yeah. they have elements of of Dracula, of Frankenstein, or the mummy, not so much the black lagoon creature. <laughs> Maybe I'm just thinking of the classic MST3K film Horror of Party Beach, but I feel like there had to be some number of like, oh no, it's a monster made of nuclear waste and he's coming for you movies in the 50s. <laughs> you know, just like whatever we're doing that's bad, I think. We make monster movies about it. Like once we got the capacity yes. to make movies at all, we just like found stuff that we were kind of titillated and uncomfortable and guilty about and just express that through monster movies. And I feel like what the mummy does in a colonialist way is to be like, should you go fuck around in the Middle East and assume it'll all work out? Yeah. <laughs> and then that, you know, really became kind of the American colonialist story in the next 20 years. I mean, it already was. It already had been for a long time. But I feel like, I don't know, the fact that this movie came out in 1999 is just very interesting to me. We were talking about sort of like how comic book movies took over in the 21st century and took over for adventure movies. And the Marvel movies are like, are the ultimate military propaganda in one way or another. But also like the first Marvel Mm. movie, Iron Man, is basically about someone rather than embracing it. It's about someone actually learning the lessons of being like, oh, shipping all these weapons over in very unstable places that we make unstable is really creating some shenanigans. Maybe we should do something different. And and 
the Marvel movies kind of have are built on a bit of a structure of trying to be woke adventure movies, but you know, it, you can only go so far when your your primary solution is lots of weapons. Mm-hmm. The monster film in general is about you know visualizing our fears coming back, and with Egyptology, you know, the, with the the curse of the the tombs and all that. On one hand, it's like the fear of the Orient. And the other hand, it's why are we bothering the Orient? Mm. You know, why why are we doing it? And nothing much changes for the characters. They sort of kind of go about their way and they have all this knowledge. And, you know, if you look at Dracula, there's a lot of sexuality there that is, it's not punished. It's sort of, it's a very, it's a very sexual uh, story in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Monsters are very sexual. Like they, they seem to mostly want girlfriends, honestly. They do want girlfriends. And I think that it's also, you know, if you, this is just a very specific kind of movie. And I think that it's much harder to do something like that now. Yeah. You can say post 9 11, or you can say because of the superhero movies are safer. You know, their antagonists deserve no sympathy. If you have sympathy for them, it's not on a cultural mm. level. So. Oh yeah, yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, these people are—that's yeah—they're devoid of sympathy. You know, I don't know. I guess I want more villains who want girlfriends or who are just like wife guys, like Mister Freeze. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, you were talking about Raiders of the Last Ark, and I want to say a story that I'm—I'm I'm worried that I've already talked about on the show. But if whatever, we've done enough where there are new listeners. Yeah. But my favorite story about Raiders of the Last Ark has to do with my father, and that story is that the last movie my father saw in the theater was Raiders of the Lost Ark because his friend Harold Goldstein told him it was going to be a movie about archaeology and the Ark of the Covenant and my dad went to see it and in his words it was just about that <laughs> asshole Harrison Ford jumping all over stuff or something along those lines. <laughs> <laughs> Which it really was. <laughs> it really was, and I love that so much. <laughs> and he really did jump all over so much stuff. Also, Raiders of the Last Ark, I think, did this thing. And the mummy does the same thing, because they have Rachel Weiss, who does not identify as Egyptian, her character in this movie, but is like, my father loved Egypt so much that he married my mother, who was Egyptian. And it's like, you're Egyptian. <laughs> You saying that means that you are an Egyptian woman, but like that's not how this character identifies. It's like this very romance novel thing of like she is of the foreign land, but still white enough to marry or yeah. whatever, I guess. And in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they were like, okay, all of the brown characters are going to be totally expendable, except Sala, who's played by Jonathan Rice Davies. <laughs> I guess there's sort of different levels of cinematic racism. There's omission, which you have in the Tom Cruise movie. There's outright slander, which you have in the Temple of Doom. Hmm. And here you have sort of, uh, I guess you can say, uh, marginalization, hmm. you know, of, of Egyptian people, that there are always a, a, a crowd of people, a crowd of diggers, or if they're actual characters, they have a very limited role. We don't know anything about them. We can't even see their faces like they they really are like cheated away from the camera even. Yeah. The amount of like cheerful death that has to happen while people are joking at the edges like I think like you lean on the unseen in humans native digger characters to make the death easier for the kids in an interesting way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because they're like, the whole world could end, you know, but they only kind of reference it verbally and it's like in the past... 20-ish years, like the stakes 
of action movies have gotten so much higher consistently. And I feel like this is a post 9-11 thing, too, that like the stakes have to be like total world annihilation. And it's like, yeah, once you've heard that so many times, it's just like hard for it to make an impact on you. You're like, oh, it's another movie where we got to save the world. Whereas like something like Speed, where like the characters who are at stake are in front of you the whole time. That's very different because and then I think with this, it's like you care about these characters that are the protagonists and you want them to be okay, and you want them to make out finally. And I think that's why it's an adventure movie, maybe more than an action movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it's like the chance to understand the seduction of narrative and the seduction of luxury is something that something like Agatha Christie gives us, too, where you, you sort of can't say like, well, people in history were terrible and we're going to be good now. It's like, no, like people are soft and seducible. And this is one of the main things about us. And I think the way that story kind of makes us feel better about the danger that we want to create for a bunch of people, that's meaningful. Like, I think it's, I don't know. I think that the fact that I can be seduced again and again by the way the mummy plays out and how enjoyable it is as a movie, even as I'm like, that's really racist. And this mm-hmm. is even feels, you know, anti-Semitic, but like, oh my gosh, Brendan Fraser is jumping around and he's got his holster on. And oh my, like every time I watch it, I'm like, I just should dress, I should wear his clothes every day. And <laughs> yeah, you should. You absolutely should wear his clothes. And the score is so good. I want to mention that too. Like the score is doing so much work here. Yeah, the score is, the score is great. That happens a lot, that there's this nostalgia for structure and safety that actually means you're limited. And when you see the mummy, you know, you're seeing a a very small, rarefied, rather wealthy group of people who are able to, you know, like even the warden takes like two weeks off to to go down the desert to check Hamanopra. You know, he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, cover me. I'm going to go get some treasure. You know, one thing we do have to talk about is how the mummy gets a whole faceless, mob of boil infested people to do his bidding and they're all brown mm-hmm. in some ways that's even more offensive than egyptian characters dying it's literally the the brown mob mm. can i speak to another just aspect of this movie that we haven't touched on and we don't have to speak on it in full in its full breadth but this movie for many people of a certain age and i'm not one of the i missed this movie i was i i'd grown out of brendan fraser by the time this movie came came along <laughs> no one ever grows out of brendan fraser i was on the encino man in brendan fraser's career uh end of the, <laughs> the career and this was this was a bit later but this was like a huge bisexual coming of age movie for a lot of people who realized yes. that they identified oh that God. they they lusted for more than one gender in this movie and i think we all know who we're talking about john Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's John Hannah and the and the woman at the very beginning of the movie. And the woman and the one woman, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, that woman is covered in body paint. Everybody has seen every inch of that woman's body. Nobody doesn't lust after that woman. I'm sorry. Oh my god, when I saw her on screen, I was like, what? I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but I, I just I want to acknowledge it, but I know that this is people's point of identity uh, for a lot of especially people who saw this as like a kids movie which is funny that like many children watch this movie under the mm. pretense that it was a kids yeah, movie yeah. that that's where they realize yes. that they were into uh, more than just Brendan Fraser or Rachel Weisz I mean how could you not because I feel like this movie is like very firmly entrenched 
and Niraja, you know much more about this than I do, but like the kind of screwball mm-hmm. tradition, like the romancing the stone tradition, just to me what is, and and certainly the romance novel tradition, which like I have read my and several other girls share of <laughs> romance novels over the years. And like, to me, the kind of one of the basic forms is like, he's makes a bad impression, but then he cleans up and she's stuck in a world that's too small for her. And so she has to go into the great big, you know, have an adventure and they have an adventure together. And what do you do when you're having an adventure? You fall in love. But like this, I don't know, the way gender feels in The Mummy feels really good to me where it's like, He's always, I mean, there's like the thing where he kisses her when he's about to be executed. And I will give him a pass because it's, he's about to be executed. And it's like yet another 90s, like forcibly kiss a woman, meet cute. But Seems like a good idea at the time is what he says. I'll give him that. <laughs> I'll give it to him. It's, you know, don't forcibly kiss women. But also, you know, we shouldn't execute people. So it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a dead heat. But <laughs> the, after that, I think the way that they relate to each other, like he's very respectful of her like you understand that he kind of gets what her strength is before she has that fully figured out and she obviously is very into him because it's Brendan fucking Fraser (laughs) and he's just like so strapping and he's got the leather boots and the leather I guess it's a holster and the blouse and the like it's a very of its time outfit and she's got the flowy the nightgowns and the dresses and the beautiful hair and it just feels like they're both doing a beautiful expression of like what is mask and what is femme Mm. at this moment but just kind of sharing this dance of like yeah we both have this outfit these outfits on and we both are in these these roles according to society but they're just like meeting each other perfectly in the middle it's just like beautiful to watch them do daring do together (laughs) You know, I really, really like Evelyn's character, and I love a kick-ass woman. I mean, I, you know, Angelina Jolie as Laura Croft is amazing to look at, amazing to watch. But I kind of feel like it's tiresome to show how a, a kick-ass woman, only because she can literally physically kick ass. Yeah. What she brings to it, I think, is a lot of sincerity and a lot of open to experience. You know, she likes the camel ride and, yeah. you know, she's excited about the dig and finding out stuff. And she's always confident, I think, in her own intelligence. And even when she's shown in the beginning, she's shown as sort of a mess. Right who like destroys a library, but that doesn't take away from her capability in the field. Mm-hmm. And what Brendan Fraser is, is really just a physical character. But a lot of the time he's sort of waiting on her to figure out what the heck is going on. We dig here, we do this, you know, and I think she's a kick-ass woman. And, she, you know, just because she's not right. physically capable are physically strong and it's you know something they abandoned in the second movie and it becomes sort of a stereotype and it's also it's just like women practically weren't allowed to exercise at this time in history like women didn't run marathons until the late 60s mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. think because people doctors thought that their uteruses would just fall right out it's annoying when you have a character who like for the purposes of being a strong woman like suddenly has all kinds of like martial arts training that you never saw her get and it's like no like Strength is about being courageous and, like, doing the best you can with what you have. Right. Not magically having skills that no one knows where they came from. 
you know, talking about how much this movie is served by just very subtle self-awareness. Like I loved it even as she's growing and sort of like her quote, like masculine performance is she still like yells, I am a librarian, (laughs) which I find to be like, that line is one of my favorites. And then also um, when Brendan Fraser is told you, uh, you were always more balls than brains. Like those are the two best summations of who these people are. One yells that they're a librarian and the other one is more balls than brains. (laughs) Like that's their, that's who they are. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) The idea that you can go to a foreign land and have adventures is not as really as, as powerful powerful anymore for some reason right we've gotten to superheroes and outer space mm. and it's hard to do it unironically i think this movie when it came out was very sincere and um you know what they would call mm. like a crowd pleaser you know in, in some ways it's timeless and in some ways it's very much of its time you know it's hard to make a remake of a classic movie and accommodate both the original movie and the time period you're in I watched a, and I would suggest other people do this, even though parts of it felt funny. There's a Rachel Maxi, I I don't know if that's how her name is said, but she's a popular YouTuber video where she watches The Mummy with Dr. Colleen Darnell, who's an Egyptologist, and they talk through the various elements that the movie got Uh got right in a way that was right and wrong in a way that was lovely because you could be really condescending and shitty about that, like especially watching this movie, and she was not, which was really nice. But it's it's really great. It's like a 20-minute video. It's well worth the watch. And um, Dr. Colleen Darnell is describing described by one of the commenters as someone who looks like an Egyptologist, a spy, a fashion designer, and a cabretier uh, all at the same time. (laughs) So yeah, it's very well worth, very well worth checking out. We know where you stand on the daddy, Niraja. Can you tell us, can you tell us about why? The whole movie is is sort of dripping with patriarchy, but really none of the characters really have a sense of what's going on. <laughs> and they're wandering around and, and they're looking for hominoptera. They want treasure. They want this. The mummy seems to come out with a real sense of purpose. Uh, he died. Uh, he was going to bring his girlfriend back. He wants to put his body back together. I think he just has so much authority. You know, I think he runs runs the show from the minute he shows up. And pretty much every other character is sort of reduced to reduced to rubble except for you know our heroes so yeah i i have to say that i i think the the mummy is the daddy i think that he's hmm. minding his own business and 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 they come and bother him and you know he's uh, he's gonna give them all a whooping <laughs> i mean i'm gonna give it to ardith bay or should i say ardith bay <laughs> <laughs> He's the narrator at the beginning. He tells us what's going on. I can't imagine that that was how they were going to have it be before he survived the movie, because then it would be like, he's like, here's the backstory, and I'm going to die later. (laughs) He is the Egyptian character who is non-expendable in this movie. Like, he's the only one who makes it. And he, by belonging to the Order of Mummy Protectors, also is kind of the closest thing this movie has to touching on the modern Middle Eastern situation, which is like, don't go digging shit up. It's interesting to me that like he's there and that that's his role. I think it's amazing that like this movie works partly because people who were given roles that they can't have not seen as like racist and probably thankless to some extent were like, cool. I'm going to give it 150% and just sell this fucking movie that I am in. We talked about the actor who plays the warden. 
the guy who plays Benny is wonderful and Oded Fair is wonderful in this role and just like he sells it and you're like I don't know how I feel about the fact that you had to sell this actually but you did a great job and I appreciate you I'm going to make up for my lost Brendan Fraser time. I feel bad that I wrote Brendan Fraser off as early as I did. He was in so many great movies that I missed out on because I <laughs> outgrew Brendan Fraser by this time. And uh, I'm going to give it to just to Brendan Fraser. <laughs> giving, not even his character, just Brendan Fraser. <laughs> and he also like makes this whole thing work. I think I told you this when we recorded a bonus. I can't remember when I told you my sense of time is so weird, but like there's the great story that I came across about the making of the movie where Brendan Fraser was at the t- just the absolute top of his game and the producer told him just kind of in in passing on the shoot like look you're so important to this movie that we took out a million dollar insurance policy on you in case you get kidnapped and Brendan Fraser's like flip response was like oh so you put a million dollar bounty on my head <laughs> John Hanna was there and said how much out of curiosity did you take out for me and they're like well we thought like 50 grand would be enough <laughs> I can't imagine how John Hannah doesn't wake up every day and think about that moment. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you to Naraja for being on the show and for talking about The Mummy. It was so, so great to have you. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, our producer, who is responsible for making these shows sound great. We appreciate everything you do, Carolyn. You are the best. You are good. We want to thank Fresh Lesh for the beats that we use on the show. We want to thank you, of course, for listening. Thanks to the folks who support on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Thanks for following us on Twitter and Instagram. Next week, I'm not sure what we're watching next week. It will probably be <laughs> the perfect storm. We're figuring it out. We're getting there. We, we, you know what? We'll be organized someday very soon. I promise. But until then, my friends, it's great having you here. Thank you so much for being great. We will talk to you soon. You are good.